This is a real struggle of human nature. The ocean's a beautiful place. People want to recreate on it. Most folks think it's an infrastructure problem. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that they thought it was a busted pipe. She had a job uh, downtown and couldn't get to work because of local flooding, and uh, she was fired. That was a sneak peek at today's interview featuring scientist Nicole Hernandez-Hammer and journalist Derek Jackson. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. In our last episode, we discussed a new report by the Union of Concerned Scientists, When Rising Seas Hit Home. The analysis pinpoints when U.S. coastal communities will become chronically flooded. But there's more to the story. In today's episode, we take a look at the impacts on the ground and how communities are adapting to rising seas. In today's conversation, I was honored to be joined by UCS scientist and community advocate Nicole Hernandez-Hammer and Pulitzer Prize-winning Boston Globe journalist and UCS fellow Derek Z. Jackson. Nicole has worked extensively with Florida communities experiencing sea level rise, and Derek has just come back from visiting communities in New Jersey, South Carolina, and Texas. We chatted about their work amplifying the voices of socioeconomically vulnerable communities facing the threat of rising seas. Nicole, Derek, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. So Nicole and Derek both worked on the UCS report when rising seas hit home, and I wanted to talk to them about what is going on in the affected communities. Nicole, I'll start with you. Tell us about the work you've been doing in Florida and where you've concentrated your efforts. Um, so for the last five years, I've been working with UCS in Florida, and we've worked everywhere from St. Augustine to Tampa to the Florida Keys. But we've uh, focused most of our efforts in South Florida for a few reasons, because uh, of the size and the diversity of its population. It's got 6.6 million people, and it's about 50% Hispanic and 20% African American. It's a very low-lying. It's a major metropolitan area. It's a major international area of business. And it's got a very complicated situation when it comes to sea level rise, because the water doesn't just come up over the edge, but it, it also comes in underground because Florida, especially South Florida, sits on a very porous limestone. So sea level rise adaptation is very complicated and it's even more complicated um, in South Florida because of that reason. So what we did there was work with scientists, local community leaders, uh, local government to move sea level rise education forward, but also uh, we put an emphasis on equitable adaptation uh, to sea level rise in Miami. So what exactly do you mean by equitable adaptation? So when it comes to climate change impacts, in this case, sea level rise, we know that there are impacts that uh, we can still avoid, but there are also some that we won't be able to. In fact, some that we're already experiencing now. So the question is, as cities begin to think about how we're going to live with rising sea levels, with increased flooding, what is that going to look like? And often the driver is based on assets. It's based on the number of people and how much money is in a place. 
So when they approach the problem from that perspective, there is an issue with equity. Derek, you recently racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles, meeting with people who are already being hit hard by sea level rise. Where did you go and what did you learn? Went to um, five locations, uh, two uh, towns in New Jersey, one in South Carolina, and then um, down the Galveston area of Texas and uh, Port Fushan in Louisiana. Very different things going on that uh, people are concerned about. For instance, in Karlstad, New Jersey, their focus is on keep the wetlands. Uh, for those of you who don't never heard of Karlstad, it's the people, locals there even say it's one of the most important towns no one's ever heard of in the New York, New Jersey area because it is home to several thousand jobs and in small industries. And it was spared, it and some surrounding communities were spared the worst effects of Superstorm Sandy because of the remaining Meadowlands uh, marsh between it and the Giants and Jets stadium, football stadium. So when people think of the Meadowlands, most people think football. But uh, in this case, um, the Meadowlands really was the savior for these communities. And so there are various conservation efforts, uh, town efforts to maintain that marsh. In Cape May, uh, New Jersey, the uh, story there is also wetlands, but in a different way. Cape May is one of America's, in fact, one of the world's most important stops on the uh, migratory flyways. Many birds fly, uh, shorebirds in particular, fly thousands of miles from Central and South America to uh, across water nonstop. And one of their landing points to refuel themselves is uh, Cape May. And big concern there is that the rising seas will, in a sense, squish the marshland, forcing birds to lose habitat along their beaches, and also losing critical marsh habitat for birds that nest in sort of what the mid-zone of low marsh and high marsh, and then forcing them into areas of the high marsh that they're not used to nesting in. Uh, went down to uh, also Charleston, South Carolina, where <laughs> climate change is already well underway to the degree that neighborhoods are already talking about it uh, in ways that perhaps they're not in most of the rest of the United States. The projections, uh, some of which UCS has done, have them going from about currently about 38, between 30 and 40, what they call sunny tide days, where the tide alone and the sea level rise combined means on the sunniest days of the year, they still have areas of local flooding. And that number is projected to go from 30 to 40 right now to as many as 180 over the next uh, half century. So there's a lot of talk about what to do there. Uh, in Galveston, Texas, uh, the Galveston Port Bolivar, which was devastated by Hurricane Ike, went there to see what they're thinking about in this a kind of a solution. The simple cliff note of that is they're thinking about walls and barriers, and they're also building their houses higher and higher. Um, and finally, uh, in Port Fouchon, Louisiana, where I found it uh, to be an interesting, I don't know if you call it a marriage, but uh, where the local oil, the biggest port serving um, the oil rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico is engaged with NOAA and conservation groups to figure out how to save the marsh. Because if the marsh goes, it's not just the birds, it's also the oil and gas industry. An example of strange bedfellows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, Nicole, can you explain a little bit about the importance of the marsh when it comes to sea level rise? 
Well, the marsh can act as a barrier and help mitigate the impacts of sea level rise and storms. So I know in Karlstadt, they, they experienced the impacts of Sandy, but they talked about how if the marsh wasn't there, it would have been much, much worse. So I'll throw this question out to either one of you or both. What did you find most surprising in your conversations with people? Hmm. Well, it depends on the, the locality. I think the surprising thing, Port Bolivar, for instance, of the Bolivar Peninsula, is that people are building homes on, I call them stilts, I'm sure they're not, but they're raised up now 14, 18 feet on average off the ground. I saw there was a couple houses that appeared to be as much as, they're almost 30 feet off the ground. And as the locals uh, told me there, it's the uh, attractiveness to live. Then this is an area, by the way, that there's a famous Associated Press photograph after Hurricane Ike, where everything was flattened except for one yellow house. And now you go back today and there are houses everywhere uh, rebuilt. And so what people think there is that it's such a beautiful area, such an important area for recreation that, as several people told me, they know that another one's coming, another hurricane or whatever is coming, uh, but they'll build and uh, rebuild again. That particular story I found interesting, the, the part where Galveston County spent tens of millions of federal and state dollars to put hundreds of thousands of cubic yards of sand back on the beach. A cubic yard of sand, that would be like a washing machine size, right? Uh, roughly. And they put hundreds of thousands of them of sand. It seems so strange to me. If you pull back and if you went up into space, that would be like putting one grain of sand there. Yeah. As an engineer kind of said very carefully, because he has to live there, is that, you know, sometimes it amazes him that people keep rebuilding as close to the shore as possible, knowing that uh, regardless of climate change, that the inevitable storm, you know, will threaten to blow away their house. Um, so that's how powerful the lure of the ocean is to them. And uh, climate change itself is not really a forefront discussion. Nicole, what have you heard people saying out there? Well, I, I think what's surprising is that Governments, local governments, um, academia, you know, we, we know what's going on with, uh, with sea level rise and sea level rise impacts. But when I go do what I call ground truthing, which is going to the places that are low lying during the times where they should be flooding to verify that the flooding is happening, I talk to folks there. And more often than not, they don't connect the flooding that they're seeing with sea level rise and the bigger picture of climate change. Most folks think it's an infrastructure problem. I can't tell you how many times people have told me that they thought it was a busted pipe. How important is it that people understand the bigger picture? Um, well, I think that, I mean, first of all, what we do when we're doing outreach on the local level is make that connection between tidal flooding, nuisance flooding, or sunny day flooding, uh, sea level rise and climate change. And it's important because we need to be able to understand the problem if we're going to adapt to it adequately and if we're going to prevent the worst impacts. As a scientist, how do you explain sea level rise to them? 
Um, well, I think at UCS we have a lot of great material, a lot of charts and images and dates um, that make it really easy to convey that information to folks. But I don't approach people as a scientist. I approach people as a community member, as a mom, as a resident, and that's really where the conversation starts about sea level rise and why are we seeing flooding today? Why is it happening? Usually in Miami, for example, it happens in October. Why is it usually happening in October? And why is there a flooding event in the morning and in the evening? That matches up with the tides. So let's talk about the tides a little bit. And what does this mean for our community now? What was happening 10, 15, 30, 50 years ago here? And what's gonna happen in 50 years? And what can we do to address that? So I usually find that when I take kind of a, an approach that goes that, that takes the science but makes it something that's useful. It doesn't lead the conversation. It's a tool. Yeah, I think that just to follow up on what Nicole is saying, one of the things I found particularly in the South, I mean, going into these uh, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Texas, uh, you know, all being red states, then several spots, people are doing things about climate change and anticipating sea level rise and just don't call it climate change. In Louisiana, for instance, they say, uh, we call this adaptation to a changing landscape. And uh, they, you know, let's just pass along the discussion of why the landscape is changing. Uh, in fact, I was told repeatedly that this goes back, the avoidance of the term climate change, even NOAA doesn't talk about, use the term climate change when talking with the local populace because for some reason back during the Al Gore days and Inconvenient Truth, However Gore said it, it rubbed people the wrong way. So he remains individually a scapegoat for why the term climate change itself remains a toxic and radioactive term. And I think that the approach of saying, you know, we're not going to worry about what causes sea level rise, but we're just going to adapt to it is dangerous because, like I said, there are some climate impacts that we won't be able to avoid. And that works, that conversation works for that. But there are impacts that we still can't avoid. And so when we don't talk about the cause of sea level rise or extreme heat or whatever climate change impact we're discussing, then we miss the opportunity to prevent the worst. And that for me is something that worries me. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, personally that worries me too. And like being there on behalf of UCS as a reporter, it's not my uh, position to then, you know, challenge and be agitating, uh, you know, come on, you're in denial. Um, it's to listen. And I think that somewhere in between what Nicole just said and, and what I heard is there's some grain of truth that I think folks who really want to have a national effort on climate change, um, especially now at this moment where we're not going to get that momentum from the federal government. Um, it's going to be a, have to be a state by state, city by city, locality by locality set of solutions. A jigsaw puzzle is not optimum compared to a national policy, but the fact that they're acting at all is an opening, I think, for those who care about climate change to think about how can I try to express the totality of what could happen and work with you on your language, work with you on what solutions you care about. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. More at ucsusa.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, 
Leave a review on iTunes, and please share us with your friends and colleagues. You can find our report, When Rising Seas Hit Home, at ucsusa.org slash rising seas hit home. Now, let's get back to our interview. Pivot to some of the impacts that were outlined in the in the case studies, because when I think of impacts, you think of a house getting flooded, people losing their possessions, having to spend a lot of money fixing their houses. Um, but there are other impacts. And Derek, tell me the story of Fouché Shepard, who you met in South Carolina. Yeah. Well, I think Fouché Shepard is a symbol of something that people are getting pretty annoyed about, not just in Charleston, but they're annoyed at it in Bolivar Peninsula, where there's a particular piece of road that is like barely above the water's uh, edge. Transportation. So Fouché Shepard is uh, locally a well-known storyteller and uh, activist, education activist, and she couldn't get to work. She had a job uh, downtown and couldn't get to work because of local flooding, and uh, she was fired. And that's what she, that's you know story she told me, and she called into her supervisor, and the supervisor was able to get to work. She lived in a different part of town that wasn't affected, and she said, "Well, I got to work. Why can't you?" And uh, whatever Fouché said obviously was not effective. <laughs> and uh, she's concerned that she's African American, and she's concerned that as cities come to, uh, quote, solutions to deal with uh, rising seas, will those applications be equitable along the lines of race and class? And she, she says, you know, can't prove it, but she felt like that she was sort of a, a victim of being in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. And going to a couple other places in Bolivar Peninsula, even though, as I said, the discussion around climate change is more difficult, people are getting quite annoyed at the fact that there's a certain part of road that is periodically closed at the highest tides, and that affects commerce there, too. So maybe one of the things, um, I didn't write it like this exactly, but in this conversation, it's making me think that maybe, you know, the interruption of commerce. Um, I talked to a Lyft driver in Charleston who's lost several rides over the years with the sunny day floods. Um, Someone calls him, he gets blocked by a flooded uh, road, he loses the ride. So perhaps the simple thing of people losing uh, wages might uh, spur some action. You can see in the interviews two distinct tactics for dealing with sea level rise. Put up a wall to hold it back or work with nature to lessen the worst effects. How's that playing out on the ground? Well, Miami Beach is a good example of an area that's actively using both approaches to adapt to sea level rise. So in some areas, they are putting in hard infrastructures uh, like walls and um, and pumps. They're raising roads. And in other areas, they're using things like living shorelines to address the impacts of sea level rise. Tell me a little bit more about living shorelines. What does that mean? Um, so it's a type of soft engineering or soft infrastructure that addresses the impacts of sea level rise by using mainly natural components like sand, 
mangroves or marsh grasses. Um, but ultimately, we need to start talking about um, stopping or phasing out policies and measures that perpetuate risky coastal development. And most importantly, we need to cut emissions. Yeah, Port Fouchon is uh, doing uh, similar work they're doing. Uh, they had a major beach replenishment after, uh, it's been ongoing actually since Katrina. And the uh, port has dredge in dredging new areas for ships to uh, come to port. They've been using that fill to uh, create new marshes. They created a thousand acre marsh that now is sanctuary to lots of uh, birds. So there's that going on. And in the case of uh, New Jersey, the, the efforts really are to just maintain what we have um, and make sure that there's no erosion of those uh, natural gifts. It, where they, the natural gifts exist in New Jersey, there seems to be a lot of activism around uh, wetlands you know, defenders. I think one big question, though, um, that uh, we have to you know, start asking is, because of the way these things are funded, these efforts are funded, how strong can those efforts remain in a declining you know, federal support environment, which boomerangs probably into less state support because states then have to devote their money to health care and other things. So I think we saw a lot of, I think, really heroic uh, local efforts to maintain both natural barriers and to like strategize about infrastructure. And it's all a huge question mark. As the mayor of Beaufort, South Carolina, told me, there's no way a town of his, which is only 13,500, even though many people have heard of Buford as a very historic and one of the cutest towns in America, the uh, tax base and the income of the populace, there's no way in the world Buford can prepare for sea level rise by itself. Yeah, they just can't afford it. So tell me, are you optimistic about our ability to, to tackle this problem after seeing it on the ground? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, when I heard that we pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, that was a moment where I felt like, are we going to be able to to deal with climate change and to prevent the worst? And I felt like, you know, maybe we, we weren't. And then when I see what folks are doing on the local level and I see how folks have come together in, for example, the We Are Still In petition or the Bipartisan Climate Caucus, then I, I, I am hopeful. And um, I think that, you know, there are places that are not going to be inhabitable. There are places where folks are already leaving. That's a reality that we're living with now and we're going to see more of. And there are some places that are going to find ways to become resilient whether there are large metropolitan areas that have lots of money and could put in hard and natural infrastructure, or small towns that are very creative and have a resilient spirit that can find ways around living with sea level rise, or living creatively with sea level rise. And I think in the long term, my hope is that the initiatives that are happening on local levels, at the state levels, will be enough to help move us towards the goal of the Paris Agreement regardless of whether or not the federal government is going to move that forward. It does feel like there's momentum building. Yeah, there certainly is. Derek, how about you? One reason I'm optimistic outside of obvious pessimism about um, the federal government at this moment is I've 
been around for UCS and the Boston Globe uh, going to various uh, cities where there now is kind of a, a race to be uh, the most renewable city, you know, in America in different ways. Uh, San Diego, for instance, has uh, pledged to uh, go for a goal of 100% renewable energy in a certain set of years. Other cities, because of that, are following suit. And we've had, you know, progressive state targets, including Massachusetts, when Governor Patrick put uh, put the Commonwealth of Massachusetts on track for major reductions in CO2 emissions. So I think as it relates to rising seas, you know, that's part of the way of getting there is to um, dealing with the cause as best as states can. So when you have strong local leadership, um, and by the way, the mayor of San Diego is a Republican, and uh, here in Massachusetts, Governor Baker, also a Republican, um, has maintained the uh, state's uh, drive um, for offshore wind, for instance. So um, what I hear you saying is we need some sort of a reality television contest for which (laughs) city can do this the fastest and in the best way. Well, actually, that, you know, to some degree, that's happening with as far as the renewable energy goals. The mayor of Washington, D.C., D.C. now is on a, at least on paper, aggressive track to expand solar energy uh, to uh, everyday residents. So mayors in particular seem to be picking up on this and, and they want their city, you know, to be the most renewable and, you know, energy efficient and so forth. So there's a lot of hope for movement, momentum coming up from the, you know, bottom up in that way. Well, thank you both. Thank you. And now it's time for Sidelining Science with Shreya Dervasala. What does science have to do with teen pregnancy? A lot, actually. Many evidence-based programs successfully help teenagers avoid becoming parents before they're ready. And there are many healthcare professionals, youth-centered organizations, social workers, and researchers who are working to identify programs and services that will work best for the teenagers in their communities. In 2015, the Department of Health and Human Services under President Obama awarded grants to 81 such institutions. These grants were intended to serve about a million young people over five years with a special focus on high-risk communities, such as Native American teenagers, low-income youth, and kids in foster care. In 2017, President Trump's administration said nope and discontinued that funding, all $213.6 million of it. Every single institution working on teen pregnancy prevention programs will be unfunded by next summer, just halfway through their multi-year research projects. The data they've collected? Unusable. Wasted. With no funding to analyze it, there can be no scientifically valid findings, and no conclusive recommendations for teen pregnancy prevention tailored to specific communities. While we're on the science of teenage sex and pregnancy, Allow me to mention an approach to reproductive education that has been scientifically proven to not work. Abstinence only. In study after study, young people who received abstinence-focused sex ed still have sex and are less likely to use contraception. Coincidentally, President Trump filled the Department of Health and Human Services with appointees who think teenagers should get more abstinence-focused sex ed. 
which may be why these funding cuts were made. If that's true, it means they've defunded programs that work in service of ideas that don't. And that is just plain sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Thanks to scientists Nicole Hernandez-Hammer and journalist Derek Jackson. Our correspondent is Shreya Dervasula. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to ucsusa.org podcast. Even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes and share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.